Okay, welcome guys. So today we're beginning with the minor prophets. Um, there isn't going to be any special introduction or explanation into the minor prophets. Uh, the minor prophets are really the same as the major prophets. The reason why they're called minor prophets is just because of the volume of the books, right? So um, you've seen with Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, there's like 40, 50, 60 chapters. Um, whereas the minor prophets tends to be like, you know, the longest is maybe, I think, 14 chapters. And um, the shortest is just one chapter. I think that's Obadiah. So um, minor, not to say like they're less important or anything. Minor is just in volume, in size of the books, right? <clears throat> so um, they are a little bit unique from the major prophets, but uh, I think we'll pick that up as we go. So let's begin, right? So we're beginning with uh, Hosea. So that comes right after Daniel. Uh, the first of the minor prophets. So we're going to look at Hosea and then we'll look at Joel. Um, so I'll, I'll give a breakdown of the book. Uh, feel free to stop me if you have any questions, uh, any comments. Um, and the rule is keep your Bible open, right? I think especially today we might be jumping a lot in between books. So just keep your finger in your Bible. Now, the prophets are not in chronological order, right? When we looked at the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, Daniel, we were at a certain point in history. We were around the exilic period. So that's the time of the exiles when the Jewish people, God's own people, the Israelites, were taken from their land as captives to foreign nations. And it was around the time period when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed which is 586 BC. But now we're actually going to go back in time, right? Before the major prophets, starting with the book of Hosea. And Hosea is, um, I don't have a timeline for you, but he's operating, he's, his ministry is around the time of 740 BC. And he's going to deal with a judgment that will come upon the nation of Israel in the year 722. So remember, the nation of Israel had been split into two. There was the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and then the southern kingdom called Judah. So the northern kingdom was judged and attacked in 722 BC by the Syrians, and God's people were taken from, from their land as captives. And so Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom before this happens. He was sent by God to warn the people that he will judge them if they don't repent of their sin and idolatry. Um, of course, they didn't listen because 722 BC happened, came to pass. And apart from what we get from the book itself, we really don't know much about the prophet Hosea. So um, let's, let's turn to chapter 1 of the book. So chapter 1 of Hosea says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So there's a list of kings given. And that is how we can date the time of Hosea. Because we know which kings reigned during which period. And I hope, I hope of one of the names in that list would stand out to you if you've been with us. And I hope it would be that of Uzziah, King Uzziah. Um, that's because we read about him in the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 6 speaks about him. And, and so... Hosea is also in ministry during the days of King Uzziah. So that makes them contemporaries, right? So Isaiah and, I, and Hosea 
were contemporaries. They were uh, in the land at the same time. And what Hosea is most known for, if people know anything of the Bible, and if they know anything about the book of Hosea, they know that Hosea was told by God to marry a harlot, to marry a prostitute. And we see this in chapter 1, verse 2. Verse 2 says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. So that's quite a hectic command from the Lord. We've seen already with the prophets that in serving the Lord, he can ask difficult things of us. Remember Ezekiel and, and what the Lord did with him. God killed Ezekiel's wife and instructed him not to mourn her death. right? And this was to be done as a sign to the nation of Israel. Here, God says to Hosea, take a wife of whoredom. And there's been discussion over what that means. Was he supposed to take a prostitute as a wife, as in a professional prostitute with clients? Um, in those days, there were temple prostitutes. And temple prostitutes would basically, it was part of idol worship, um, false uh, worshipping false gods. Um, and I mean, it's been said that uh, prostitution is the oldest profession and there were temple prostitutes in those days. And Proverbs, even Proverbs 23 speaks of, uh, for a prostitute is a deep pit, an adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the unfaithful among mankind. So God forbid any involvement with prostitutes. So I don't think God said he must get a professional prostitute. The way the lover is described here in this book is more of a loose woman than a prostitute, an adulterous woman. So this is a woman who has many lovers, but she has relationships with each of these men. She's not a prostitute. And God says to Hosea, I want you to take this woman and marry her, and you are going to have children by her. And you learn as you go through the account that Hosea actually comes to represent the Lord. Right? Hosea takes a woman named Gomer as his wife, and she represents Israel. So their relationship becomes symbolic of God's relationship to Israel. And the account is a real account. It actually happened. Some people argue that this is not an actual account. Some have said this is like a parable. Um, it's like a parable and it's, uh, what's the word? It's, uh, you know, just, just, we're just supposed to take lessons from it. Um, but uh, I don't think so. It seems to be a real account. And we don't have the usual features of a parable in the story of Hosea, right? Uh, besides, if you were going to take that argument seriously, I think you would have to be consistent and say Ezekiel's wife didn't really die. You know, that's just a parable. Um, so I think this is a real account, right? So it's a real account of something that did happen. And as you go through the account, you'll see that Hosea represents the Lord, right? Go, uh, Gomer represents Israel, God's people. And Gomer has a son. And verse 4 of chapter 1 says, so verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So she has a child, and the first child is to be called Jezreel. Jezreel is a place where a man named Jehu brutally killed and slaughtered many people. So Jehu was one of the kings. 
And he killed so many people at Jezreel that it became known as a place of bloodshed. So God says, I want you to name your son Jezreel because I'm going to destroy the people of Israel, similar to how Jehu killed at, at Jezreel. I'm going to bring destruction and bloodshed among them. They're going to die. Verse 6, she conceived, and bore, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will, have, for I will no more have mercy on the house on the house of Israel to forgive them at all but I will I'll, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by their Lord by the Lord their God I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen so Gomer gives birth to a baby girl and the girl is named no mercy in in the Hebrew it's lo ruhama which means she has not received mercy Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So the main theme, the main message of the whole of scripture is the, is the phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a verse that is found throughout the whole Bible. And here the Lord is saying, you are not my people and I am not your God. So it's really a divorce. God divorces his people. So God has said to Hosea, take a wife who has many lovers and is unfaithful, have children with her, and give the children names which are descriptions of the judgment I will pour out. Right, so the first, the first child is Jezreel because God will bring about bloodshed and death. The second child is no mercy because God will no longer show mercy. And then the third child is not my people right? because God will divorce them. So if you are living... If you're living in Israel at the time, you would know the prophets. They were known in the land, right? And in a sense, they had a, a higher status because these were men through whom God would speak. As an Israelite, you would know who Hosea is. And, and this would be a shock. It'd be like, okay, have you heard about Hosea, right? Did you see who he got married to? Why is a prophet taking a loose woman, you know, an adulterous woman as his wife and have children with her? You can imagine that's what the people are saying amongst themselves. It's kind of scandalous. But what the children of Israel should have been thinking is, that's a lot like us, right? That's what the Lord has done with us. He has taken us as his people, even though we are loose, unfaithful, and deep in spiritual adultery. As a nation, they were having affairs with pagan gods, right? God's people were, were unfaithful to God, and, and now God is going to judge them. So verse 10 says, Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So God says, I'm going to judge you. You're not going to be my people. But there's a promise of restoration. And we've seen this pattern throughout the prophets so far, right? It's judgment, but also restoration. Now, why exactly is God punishing Israel? Turn to chapter 2. So chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face. And her adultery from, from between her breasts. 
lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Instead of instead of lovers pursuing Gomer, right, pursuing the uh, uh, Hosea's wife, who represents God's people, it was Gomer who pursued the lovers. See verse five. Look at verse five. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. That's, that's one of the interesting things about idolatry. We tend to think our idols supply our needs, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual. And that is what the idolatrous woman in this passage is saying. Right? She's saying, my lovers who give me bread and water to sustain her. But who really is giving her bread and water? It's the Lord, right? It's her husband. And this is precisely what idolatry does. Um, it, it thinks that life is to be found in lifeless things, right? Uh, but the problem with this is that life doesn't come from lifeless things. It comes from the living God. And now the Lord, so the Lord will say, I'm not going to give it to you anymore. I'm kicking you out and you are going to go out naked and ashamed. Verse 11, and I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. Again, you see this idea that her lovers provide for her, but God is her provider. He sustains her, and yet she is un unfaithful to him. Eventually, the Lord says, enough is enough. Verse 13 she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. But notice what God says now in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you be will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by, by name no more. So basically, even though God is going to divorce her, eventually he will lure her and bring her back to him. Verse twenty one And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the the earth and the earth shall answer the grain the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy so remember that's the daughter's name no mercy and I will say to not my people you are my people and he shall say you are my God so God continues to keep his covenant he remains faithful despite the people being unfaithful to him and the apostle Paul picks up on this picks up on this truth about God's faithfulness to his chosen people. So um, in your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter nine. So go to the book of Romans chapter nine quickly. So Romans chapter nine verse twenty two. So 
uh, Romans 9 is about God's election, right? Who God has chosen to save and why he saves us. So verse 22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even to even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So in Romans, Paul is saying, God has chosen to save not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And where does Paul get this idea from? Where does he, where, how does he back this up? He, he goes and quotes the book of Hosea. So look at verse 25 of Romans. Paul says, As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So Paul reads Hosea and he sees the fulfillment of Gentiles being brought into the people of God. Those who are not the people of God are now the people of God. And the apostle Peter actually does the same thing. So turn again with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. So 1 Peter chapter 2, um, verse 9, uh, Peter is writing to Christians in the region of Asia Minor. And he says in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter is quoting both from Exodus chapter 19 and Hosea. So the terms that were applied to ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, who is Peter now applying them to? He's applying them to the church, to the people of God. He's applying them to us, right? So uh, turning back to Hosea, back to chapter 3 of Hosea. In chapter 3, Gomer, despite being married to Hosea, she continues her adulterous ways, right? And then Hosea divorces her. But the Lord tells Hosea to get his wife back. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a litech of, of barley. So Hosea has to redeem her back. Right? Here's a woman who has been sleeping around. It wasn't, it wasn't as though she got married to Hosea and then stopped her ways. She continued to sleep around. And Hosea divorced her. And now the Lord says, take her back. She's an adulteress, but I want you to take her back. And it's going to cost you. You notice how Hosea has to pay. He has to pay um, silver. Uh, you're going to have to buy her back, Hosea, and really it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel because it's, it's a display of God's grace and mercy. He redeems his bride, a bride who is a mess, right? Uh, we are a mess because of our sin, and yet the Lord redeems us and takes us to himself. So 
in chapters 4 to 14, right, for the rest of the book, Hosea goes into detail about Israel and what Israel has done wrong and its accusations and warnings against the people. And he's accusing them of faithlessness and sin and idolatry. And he gives them warnings about the judgment to come. So if you go to chapter 6, in chapter 6, here he is, here he's pleasing, sorry, here he's pleading with the people to turn to the Lord, right? And he's encouraging them to seek him, even, even in the face of God's judgment. So he says in verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. So notice notice how Hosea is saying us, right? Let us return to the land. Um, he will heal us. So that's one thing you notice about the prophets, is that they never separated themselves from the people and the plight of the people, right? Um, they always saw themselves as part of um, the nation of Israel. It wasn't you guys, you're going to receive God's mercy you people turn from your ways. It's let us follow the Lord. Let us repent and and do what God has commanded. Verse 3, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And then look at verse 6. For I desire, sted, this is the Lord, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God God is saying that he wants the heart of the people, not morality, not religion. Um, you, know, you know the scripture, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The point of the law and the offerings and sacrifices was a means to express love, right? The law teaches us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. And... The people, what the people were doing is they were chasing after idols, right? They were uh, uh, worshipping false idols, um, the idols of foreign nations, but they were still performing sacrifices. They were still performing sacrifices in the temple. They were still doing the rituals that they were supposed to do. And that does not display the love of God. That is hypocrisy. And religious people perform Christian rituals all the time, going to church, Bible studies, giving tithes. And yet their hearts do not love God and seek to know him, right? Um, and that was, that was Jesus' main issue with the Pharisees. He said, uh, on the outside of the cup, you, you, you're clean, right? The cup looks clean, but on the inside, where the heart is, it is filthy. It is dirty, right? And, and God, it's not to say that the externals don't matter, but when you clean the inside of the cup, the outside of the cup will follow. God cares more about our heart's love for him than the things that we do in his name, right? And that is what the Lord is saying in verse 6. He desires steadfast love and not sacrifice. Uh, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Um, and so it continues, uh, the book of Hosea continues like that. So if you read uh, from chapter 6, then going to chapter 7, uh, towards the end, it's just more and more uh detailed accusations and warnings and appeals for the nation of Israel to turn, right? To turn from their sin and turn to God. And then we come to chapter 14. So that's the last chapter. 
chapter 14, uh, this is where Hosea's ministry comes to an end. And he says in verse 9, if you look at verse 9, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So it sounds very similar to wisdom literature, right? Whoever is wise, let him understand. Uh, Whoever is discerning, it sounds like something that Solomon would write. Um, and this is this is him ending a war, ending the book with a warning and a charge to be wise. So remember that we have Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And in this verse, he's actually addressing the southern kingdom. He's addressing the nation of Judah because God had already judged Israel for their sin. So he's saying, if you, Judah, are wise, then you will not follow the path of Israel, right? Um, if you see, if you have a sibling and you see him do something and he gets punished for it, why would you go and do the same thing? You know, like you're going to get punished doubly because you knew that you should not do that thing. And you've seen the consequences that somebody else bore. But unfortunately, Judah doesn't listen. And we've seen with some of the other prophets that Judah is twice as guilty, right? They say Judah is twice as guilty compared to Israel because they saw what happened to Israel and yet they still did not repent, right? They did not remain faithful to the Lord. And so what message can we take from this book, right? It's, it's a very simple one. And it's that God continues to bring his people back to himself, right? He divorced Israel, but he took her back, which is good news for us because the Lord not only saves us, but he keeps us. He keeps us to himself. Um, as, as a Christian, you know, you, you, you might be familiar with the words justification, sanctification. Uh, we are saved. And then we are sanctified. And in that process, you will realize that you really cannot keep God's commands. You cannot uh, remain faithful to God, right? You are a fallen creature. You are weak in, your, in your, your sinfulness. And it's the Lord who has to keep you, right? It's Christ who will not lose his sheep. And personally speaking, I think, I often think that I'm more worthy of hell after the Lord has saved me than before, Right? Because now I have the Holy Spirit. Now I have been forgiven much. And I know the love of God. And yet I still sin and rebel against him. But the good news is that God keeps his word and his covenant. Right? And even though we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And uh, that is not to say that we should take things lightly. We should take sin lightly. Because um, the, the, the New Testament warnings are very... Um, severe of those who have more light, right? We have more light. We know much more the grace of God and we should not trample it underfoot. So it's something that as believers we should be very aware of is, first of all, the high cost that God has paid for our salvation and that we should walk closely with him and that we should repent of our sin. Um, so that's 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 quick. That's an overview of the book of Hosea. Uh, I don't know if there's any questions there, any comments so far. Any misunderstandings?
I'm taking the silence as a positive then. Okay, then let's let's look at Joel, right? So the book of Joel is only three chapters long. Um, we don't know, so we don't know when Joel was written or when Joel lived, because he doesn't he doesn't give us a list of kings like all the other prophets do. So Joel is apocalyptic literature, and we've discussed apocalyptic genre before. Apocalyptic literature uses figurative and symbolic language. Think of the book of Daniel and Revelation. And so the book of Joel is famous for the phrase, the day of the Lord. And it's important to know what the day of the Lord is, right? You may have heard about it before. You may have read it uh, when you looked at um, uh, the book of Revelations, maybe. And it's really simple, right? The day of the Lord refers to judgment day when you and I will stand before God. Now, when we think of the day of the Lord, we should, we should remember that it's characterized by two things. One is a pouring out of divine wrath on God's enemies. Right? That's God's judgment. He's paying, uh, he's visiting the sins of the people and he's delivering justice. On the other hand, the day is also a pouring out of divine blessing on God's people. Right. I think uh, Christians tend to forget that it's not just a horrible day or scary day, but it's a day that involves blessing. And um, if you read Revelation, the description of it is there's a lot of rejoicing in heaven. Right. And celebrating among the saints. So the day of the Lord involves both judgment and blessing. And at the final at the final judgment. So so remember that there is the day of the Lord with a capital letter D, which is the final day of the Lord, right? The final judgment at the end of history. But all along scripture, you will find that there is a day of the Lord with a small letter D, right? And even in this book, in the book of Joel, the phrase day of the Lord is used to describe the plague of locusts that destroys crops and results in famine. And it's also used to describe an invasion of armies. Right. So it can be used to point to um, God's judgments that are not at the end of time. Right. God judging um, um, people for their sin is a day of the Lord. And we will see now in Joel that that um, God will be judging the Israelites. And it's a small letter D day of the Lord. The small letter D ones, these are events of judgment that point to the final judgment. It's a foretaste. It's a shadow of the final judgment. For example, the, temp the destruction of the temple that we see in Jeremiah is a day of the Lord. When God comes in judgment to the nation of Israel and pours out his judgment on them. And the judgment on the northern kingdom by the Syrians was also a day of the Lord. And in the New Testament, what happens in 70 AD is also a day of the Lord. So even in our times, right, there are days of the Lord when there's disasters and catastrophes. There's earthquakes, hurricanes, famines, uh, an outbreak of a disease, a tsunami. Those are days of the Lord. The person who dies in a car accident today, right? the person who has a heart attack, it's the day of the Lord for them. The individual who dies is immediately in the presence of the Lord, either to enjoy him or they will be damned. So there are small day of the Lord all the time to one 
to one degree or another. But there will be a final day of the Lord, right? Where the whole universe will be wrapped up. It'll be wrapped up like an old garment. And Joel speaks about the day of the Lord, both small letter D and big letter D. So look at chapter chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And in chapter 1, judgment comes on Judah, right? Um, he speaks about this invasion of locusts coming in. And he speaks of it as an invading army that's going to destroy all the plant, all the plant life. So verse 15, look at verse 15, it says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Right, so he's speaking of the locust there as a day of the Lord, a day of judgment. And then if you go to chapter 2, in chapter 2, now he speaks about this army invading from the north. Right. And this is a warning given of a nation coming from the north to destroy. The way Israel is set up geographically is all nations coming to attack would have to come from the north because they couldn't. Next to Israel was the desert and you can't travel through a desert. Right. That's that's basically suicide. And eventually it's the Babylonians. So this is a prophecy about the Babylonians who will come from the north. Right. Traveling south. And destroy Jerusalem in the year 586 BC. So verse 1 of chapter 2 says. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm of my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. Their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. So this, is, so this army is coming and the imagery used here makes them frightening, right? It's not just an army. It's an army coming as God's judgment. So you should be afraid of them. Verse 6. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. And then verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So that is a graphic, violent, frightening picture. And it is the Lord who is in charge of this army. Right? The army, the army being spoken of here is the, the Babylonians. It's a foreign nation. But who is in charge of the Babylonians? It's God. And Isaiah chapter 10, in, in Isaiah chapter 10, the Lord says, Babylon is like an axe in my hand. I use it for my purposes. Right? So God is using a foreign nation as a weapon to judge his own people. But then from verse 15, the Lord has pity on the people and he offers hope of restoration. And so we see the pattern of sin and judgment, but then hope and restoration being offered to the people. So verse 18 says, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. 
the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Uh, then the Lord says this in verse 28. And verse 28 is probably what the book of Joel is most famous for. So verse 28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord, uh, before the awesome uh, day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So why is this, is this passage famous? Um, does anyone know it? Does, does it sound familiar? If it, does, if it does sound familiar, it's because of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, right? So turn with me to the book of Acts. So go with me to Acts chapter 2 quickly. So in Acts chapter 2, what's going on is the Holy Spirit is poured out and the disciples start speaking in languages. They start speaking in tongue, right? Languages that they didn't learn. And all the visitors to Jerusalem, people from many different parts of the world, uh, Asia, Libya, Arabia, they can all hear the apostles speaking in their own languages. So Acts 2 verse 5 says, now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished. But some people, uh, they see this happening and they mock, right? They say, oh, they must be drunk. Yeah, they must have been drinking. And Peter says, no, it's still too early to be drunk, right? Um, so clearly they were not South African. Um, and then Peter goes on to, to say, uh, Peter then says, I will give an explanation of what is happening. And he begins to, Peter begins to preach a sermon from the book of Joel, right? Or he quotes the book of Joel in his sermon to explain why people are speaking tongues or languages that they didn't learn and are proclaiming the truths of God in them. So pilgrims from all over the world heard them telling in their own language the great things of God, right? And Peter says, this is a fulfillment of what was prophesied in Joel. And he says, if you go down to look at verse 17. Verse 17, Acts 2, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, 
the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter says, the sun turning to darkness and the moon turning to blood is what is happening right now at Pentecost. Do you see that? What Joel prophesied is being fulfilled. So Peter is explaining what is happening in cosmic terms, in apocalyptic language. In scripture, radical events on earth are often described in cosmic terms, right? So you will hear these major events being described using the moon, the stars, the heavens, and the sun. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is a unique event. It's a massive once-off event. People, uh, people often pray for another Pentecost. and You can pray as much as you like. It's never going to happen again. Right? It's a once-off event that, by its very definition, can't happen again because the Lord has already poured out His Spirit, right? And uh, John, so John Piper explains it in a helpful way. Oh, uh, he, he explains what's happening in a very helpful way for us, right? He uses um, the analogy of a lake. So when Joel says that God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh, he means that God will draw near to men and women and make himself known and felt in a powerful way. And uh, John Piper says that there's a great difference between perceiving a lake at a distance and being immersed in the lake. Right? It's one thing looking at the lake, it's another being inside of it. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is the presence of God in the world to reveal himself by some action or some word. But now in the New Covenant, he's with us in a deeper, more profound way. And uh, so I'm quoting this from an article that John Piper wrote. He says, when God draws near to a person by his spirit, he does so to reveal himself. He aims to be known as God, not as a psychic phenomenon or some indescribable fantasy. Therefore, when he pours himself on us by his spirit, he stirs up in us true images and conceptions of his beauty and power and mercy and truth and holiness and greatness. And he quickens our affections to respond properly to all that we see. It is unthinkable that a person could be, as it were, soaked by the presence of the infinite and holy God and not be moved deeply. If you are not often moved deeply by the self-revealing presence of the judge of the world and the lover of your soul, then pray for the fulfilling of Joel 2 verse 28 in your experience and set your gaze firmly on God's beauty in scripture. Right? So... If you want, uh, we will look. We'll look more. We'll, we'll go into deep explanation of uh, what's happening at Pentecost uh, when we get to the Book of Acts. Right, so you have to keep coming to the sessions to get more. Um, um, we'll be able to discuss more fully what happened there and what it means because a lot of passages are misunderstood about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But what we should take away from it, uh, at least right now, is that. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a huge event, right? It's like the sun turning to darkness and the moon turning to blood. It's also, it's also a sign of judgment. So that is why the language used is like that, right? It's the day of the Lord and yet it's the, whole, it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, it seems to be a disconnect. But it actually fits in with what Paul says in Corinthians about tongues, Right? He said that tongues are a sign of judgment. That's what they were to the Jewish people. So 
So he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The Jewish people knew that if you heard people of other tongues speaking, that was a judgment because it meant that you were being invaded, right? There was an enemy in the land. Um, and so these Jews in Pentecost, they realize that. And so they ask, what must we do to be saved, right? If you, re- if you continue to read in Acts, you'll see, they'll be like, what must we do to be saved, Peter? Because, um, you know, they, they were pierced to, to the heart. They were afraid. They were convicted. And Peter tells them to repent and to be baptized. So keep this in the back of your mind for when we uh, get firstly to the book of Acts and then to Revelation. Because if you start reading about the stars and the moon and the sun in a literal way, then you'll, you'll, battle, to inter- you'll battle to interpret that part of scripture, right? But even in the book of Acts, we have the apostle Peter showing us how to interpret those kinds of passages, right? How to read apocalyptic literature. If you think about Pentecost, the sun didn't turn literally to, um, to, to darkness or the moon to, to blood. Um, so there's a hermeneutic there that we can learn from when it comes to interpreting um, apocalyptic literature. Okay, so going back to Joel, going back to Joel, go to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, the Lord judges the nations. And that is good news for a Jew when God judges the nations, right? He's judging your enemies. And so it says, it says in verse 14, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So Joel is probably referencing the judgment that is going to happen to the nation of Israel. But this verse, and if you read the rest of chapter 3, it points beyond that, right? It points beyond that to the final day of judgment in history. And every day, you and I, we get closer and closer to the day of the Lord. You can't move away from it. Uh, it's inevitable. Each day, we take one step closer to eternity. And Paul says in Romans 13 that the day of your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. Right? So every one of us is moving closer to that day. And then you look at this passage here in Joel. It says multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Right? There are many in the valley of decision before the day of the Lord. So you and I need to make a decision whether we are going to follow the Lord or you're going to reject him. And all these little small day of the Lord should be a warning to us, right? You are, you are seeing things on the news, these natural disasters, uh, these accidents, these epidemics, these pandemics, you see the deaths, Right? And that should sober us up to remember that there is the final day of the Lord coming. That's, that's actually a grace from the Lord to remind you of your mortality. You know, where are you going after this life? When you stand before the Lord, will it be um, as a faithful servant or will you be damned? There's a reason why the book of Ecclesiastes says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, Right. The house of mourning reminds us that we are all in the valley of decision. And even if, even if we don't live to see that day when Christ returns, we will still experience a personal day of the Lord, right? Every one of us. And verse 18 of chapter 3 says, And in that day the mountain shall, shall drip sweet wine, and the hill shall flow with milk, and all the steam beds of Judah 
shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in the land. And then verse 20, But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Right, That's the final day of the Lord. And verse 21 can even be an encouragement to Christians living in, we live in a fallen world. And there's injustices committed against people all the time. We suffer injustices. And sometimes we're like, you know, people are getting away with evil that they commit to other people, even to ourselves. But verse 21 says, God says, I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, right? He has not yet avenged uh, the blood um, in the land of Israel as yet. But we know that at the final day, at the final judgment, all will have to answer for their sins. And really, um, there's, when uh, you as a Christian, for those who have wronged you, you know that justice will be delivered, right? Either in the person of Christ, for our enemies who have repented, or they will have to pay for the wages of their sin themselves. So all that to say is, remember the final day of the Lord. It will come for all of us. And who do you have your hope in? Who do you have your faith in? Have you repented of your sin? Have you trusted the living Christ? You know, are you to be found safe in him? Um, if not, then I implore you, you know, to repent of your sins and trust in Christ because the day of the Lord will not be pretty for those who are not to be found in the Lord. So we'll end it there with Joel. Um, are there any questions, any comments? Any thoughts anyone would like to share?